Hi, welcome to the third session of the Fairy and Fantasy class. Today we have our second discussion of Sir Orfeo, focusing on Orfeo himself and what we can notice about his departure from his court and his encounters with Fairy. At the beginning of class, you will notice that I make a reference to a photographer at work. This was the intrepid Carly Colaya, a talented photographer and a former student who can recite the first eleven lines of Beowulf in Anglo-Saxon with a speed and fluidity that would truly astonish you. Carly was in class that day, taking pictures to be sent along to the Washington Post to accompany the story that they just published on my podcast. Anyway, on to Sir Orfeo. I want to pick up today with Orfeo's departure from... Oh, uh, and I want to explain. Carly's taking some pictures, but don't worry about it. Just, we're going to proceed um, with no offense to her as if she isn't here. So anyway, um, Orfeo and his departure. Uh, now, what's his plan? What does he do? What do you notice? And here, you know, of course, this is, of course, true in general, but today... Uh, you know, in a special, there's some things that I think that we really need to notice and be careful about. Um, so I want to be focusing as, 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 as carefully as we can at the details of the text here. What exactly are we told? What do we see about Orfeo's plan when he leaves? Like, for instance, one word that I think I used to describe his departure sort of casually um, and yet inaccurately uh, is abdication, that he abdicates and leaves. He doesn't abdicate. Right? You'll notice, what does he do before he goes? Puts his steward in charge and says, take care of everything while I'm gone. And if you find out later on that I'm dead, then, you know, then find a new king. Right? But his departure is not an abdication, which is interesting because it seems as sort of permanent and thoroughgoing as his departure appears to be. And he certainly uh, doesn't seem to have any, you know, time frame for a return. It is interesting to see that he is definitely not never planning to return, right? There is some evidence that he is at least holding that open as a possibility. So anyway, just one illustration of how we need to be careful and how I want us to be careful uh, in looking at the details here. So again, back to the first question. What does he do when he departs? What is, seems to be his plan? What do we, how are we prompted to, to, to understand or contextualize his departure? What do you think? What do you notice? Will? First thing I noticed, because it's called Sorfeo, and you called attention last time to the fact that, you know, he's not a knight, he's a king, but he's going to be a piece of action. But when you said that, I sort of imagined that he's going to, like, step down and put on, like, armor and take a sword and ride out and try to find his queen. But he doesn't. He puts on Humphrey's clothes and takes his heart and goes and plays it in the woods. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is not at all, as you say, it doesn't look at all like knight errantry here, right? Um... And therefore also doesn't exactly seem to be a quest in search for her, exactly. Uh, you use the word pilgrim, which is used in the notes. That's what a sclaven is. So that's that, that we, we get that. What else do we see that is interesting about how he is attired when he goes out? We get a lot of information about what he doesn't have. He's wearing a sclaven. And what, what else are we told about him when he leaves at the gate? He's barefoot. He's barefoot. Yeah, which would be another thing which would be associated with pilgrimage. Not always. You didn't always have to be barefoot when you went on pilgrimage. But that was like a special extra level, right? You might, for instance, be assigned as a penance to go on a pilgrimage uh, to Canterbury or possibly, for a a more significant pilgrimage, to Jerusalem. That would be the big one, right? Um, Or, but but then there's, you know, another level. Like an extra heavy dose of penance would be to take a barefoot pilgrimage. That was serious business, right? That was seriously penitential, to take a barefoot pilgrimage. So he's wearing a pilgrim's 
outfit, and he weaves the gate barefoot. Um, and that, I think, is interesting, and it's a little unclear to know how to take that, right? Because the pilgrimage, that has a destination, right? This is not, that doesn't mean I'm going to go wander about aimlessly for the rest of my life. Um, it suggests a destination, and also, especially combined with what, what I was already pointing out about his steward, right? A, a pilgrimage is a there and back again journey, right? You go to the, pilgrim, to the pilgrim site and then you return. It's not a one-way trip. So he seems to have, the implications, or at least the framework that we're given, the cues that we're given to understand his departure, seem to put it in that context. And also, possibly, with the barefoot stuff, maybe invite us to think about this in some kind of penitential sense. You know, that he is, or at least in some way, at least metaphorically, understands what he's doing or is contextualizing it in terms of penance. Any thoughts? What do we make of this? How do we understand this in the context? Well, I mean, I, was, I thought of Arthur and Legend, kind of obviously. Um, but a lot of times remember when the knight loses his lady, he, he goes off to be alone in the woods. And just, it's not like he's giving up all the time. He's never going to come back. He needs that time to be alone and mourn for the woman's loss. Right. Everybody needs a little time to run mad in the woods uh, on certain occasions. Yes, exactly. And of course, the best and finest Arthurian tradition, you would strip yourself buck naked and run off into the woods uh, and be crazy, preferably near a well, right? Uh, so that you have a convenient water supply and yet are insane. And then, you know, you can, like, attack any random person who comes in. And if you're an intrinsically good guy who is running naked and insane in the woods, then you might, you know, like, like barbarously leap out and, like, rescue damsels by, like, attacking bad guys, you know. But whatever. I mean, it's that, that is in the finest tradition. So I agree. Loses his lady. This horrible thing has happened. The reaction, I'm going to take off at least the majority of my clothing and go off into the woods. Um, certainly, that, that sort of generically fits. It's a kind of thing that one might be expected to do. Um, but he's not crazy. In fact, he's quite deliberate, right? Uh, uh, when Sir Lancelot runs mad into the woods, uh, when Guinevere rebukes him, he very distinctly does not, you know, make arrangements uh, for his for his lands and possessions and everything before he goes right. Uh, so clearly, I mean, it's 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 different too. And the whole pilgrimage context is also alien to that. Um, that is very much an interruption of natural life, right? I'm gonna I'm taking like a little sabbatical from my nightly career in order to be insane in the woods, right? Um, for a for like an appropriate period of time until I will be healed at some point later on down there, but though healing is often, is usually required. It's not like they just come back in a couple weeks and like, okay, I'm good now, right? Uh, usually something is required, uh, normally reconciliation with the lady, but anyhow, um, so, so we do get that context, and I think we can see it's not totally bizarre, um, but yet also it doesn't perfectly fit into that model either, so I think that's important. What does the text really emphasize? What does it spend most of its time talking about in the description of his departure and in the, the, the description that we get of his initial, uh, you know, sort of the, the first descriptions that we get of his time away? Jordan, what do you notice? Um, what I noticed is it emphasizes how, how visually he had lived and how poorly he lived out, which, in contrast, combined with his departure, the fact that he's in with a fancy hug, and that just, you know, 
He's poor, alone, eating gooseberries, but he's got this really nice hug. Yeah. That, that struck me. Good. I think both of those things are really important. The fact that the harp is the only thing that he takes, and also, and you're right, it spends, I, I just thought a kind of surprising amount of time talking about this, like, once he was rich, and now he was poor. Once he slept on silks, and now he sleeps on the ground. Once he had a nice pillow. I keep expecting it to be done, and it's not done, and they keep going, no, 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 another 20 lines ex- explaining what he used to have and what he doesn't have now, right? So, I mean, I think that, yeah, that's definitely something that it really, I, I was about to say, harps on, which would be inappropriate, but go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Um, and another thing, leaving ahead a little to the you know, theory castle, I think they emphasize he never really had a great castle at all in some sense. You know, his castle was always, you know, this humble abode in the woods compared to the fairy. Yeah, you know, that I think is really cool because uh, you're certainly right. After all of this, like, oh, remember back to how rich and comfortable and sweet his life used to be before, and now how crude and rough and horrible it is. And yeah, the contrast is then monumental, right? And wham, oh, how you never had it before, right? Although that isn't his, that isn't how he transitions into it. Remember that, that, the event, and we're jumping ahead here, and I'm going to want to stop and go back, but, but we're moving in that direction, so I'll indulge it. The, 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 how he transitions into that is when he meets Herodotus, right? And you'll remember, what is he thinking when he sees the ladies uh, doing their falconry? Yeah, he's like, I used to do that all the time. He recalls, he does in his own head that thing that the narrator's been doing. Now I just wander around in the woods, but before I used to go to falconry all the time, Right? I shall go and see that. And we see it for the first time, him moving in the opposite direction. He's been like, I am departing richness and nobility and moving into savagery and the wild. But then for the first time, we see him saying, here I am at savagery and the wild. Over there is nobility and courtly comfort. I like that. I used to have that. I shall go and see. And it's before he sees Herodotus. That's how he sees her, right? So he moves towards that, and his motion towards that is one of identity, of recognition. Hey, that's like me. I belong there, right? I'm, it's okay for me to come and join in or at least witness the falconry. And then he meets, he realizes his own wife is one of the 60 ladies who, who's, who's out there. And then he follows them, knowing that he's transgressing a boundary, doing it on purpose and saying, I don't care what happens to me as a consequence. And then he sees the fairy kingdom, which makes his own uh, frequently referred to riches and comforts look small, petty, and tawdry compared to the unspeakable wealth, grandeur, and brilliance, quite literal brilliance uh, of the fairy kingdom and the fairy castle. So yeah, I think that that's, it's interesting to see sort of both sides, both that contrast, but also the way that he works into it by that, by that uh, recognition of likeness. With his, with the comparison of what he used to have to the fairy king, I, I was struck immediately online at uh, 245 that yeah. they used the exact same description yes. of the fairy king, castles and towers. And Isn't that, that incredible? Yeah. I mean, it's not just similar. It's freaking word for word. Did anybody else notice that? Look at that. Look at that. This is online. Let's see. It's online 245. Right, we've just been talking about how, like, oh, he used to sleep on, on, you know, on, a, on beautiful purple linen in a bed, and now he lies on the hard heath um, with leaves and grass. In line 245, hey, that had castles and tours, river, forest, frith with floors. 
He had all these things, and now he's off in the snow and frost and roughing it, and isn't it horrible? That exact couplet is part of Herodotus' description, word for word, of the tour that she gets from the fairy king. So this is back, uh, let's see, where are we? Line one. Thank you. Yes, yes. Uh, going up a little bit, 157. And brought me to his palace, well attired in each wise, and showed me castles and tours, rivers, forests, frith with floors. It's the same lines. The guided tour that she gets a fairy, wow, isn't it great, wow, isn't it beautiful, is also, by the narrator, what Sir Orfeo, in recollection, had in his leaving behind. That's really cool. And now, the difficult question. What do we make of that? What do we do with that? I think it's like a twofold way. Like, as um, the fairy king has, we, we learn the fairy king has, we lose her heart. Herodis. Thank you. <laughs> and then, you know, as Orpheo is trying to reclaim her, we see everything is lost. Then I also took it as, like, the fairy world is a mirror for our world. Or like the fairy king and Orpheo are ca- obvious counterparts to each other, and their castles, their lands are obvious. They both want her, so clearly she has a counterpart. She did that. Yeah, I mean that's. It's hard. I mean, I think these lines make it really hard. Um, and I mean, I would go further to say inappropriate to resist those parallels. It does seem, and we might not necessarily have thought it. I mean, okay, perhaps like in some sense, right, that you've got one king, one mortal king, and one and, and, and the fairy queen. But the direct comparison, we, I, we certainly can't resist it anymore. And you're right. Of course, the central thing, the thing that really connects them is Herodotus. Both of them appear to desire Herodotus. Now, we don't, as we said last time, don't really know the nature of the fairy king's desire for Herodotus. Has he fallen in love with her and wants her for his own wife? We don't know that. In fact, the evidence we have seems to be against that. Um, that is, she seems to be joining his entourage in general. We never see her in her involvement in the, with the fairies or in fairy um, as anything but like one of a group, right? Um, he's, he brings this group of damsels on palfreys with him, and she's going to join them, presumably. We see her out falconing with the 60 women. We meet her in the courtyard with lots of other creepy and unfortunate people, right? We'll come. We'll come back to that later. By far the most bizarre and striking passage from this poem. There's one place from Sir Orfeo that people always remember. Uh, It is that quite shocking description of the people in the courtyard when he comes through the gates. But but we'll come back to that. Anyway, um, so again, we don't have any clear, we don't have any evidence to suggest that she is like singly, you know, uh, uh, desired by the fairy king. You know, he's not, she's not going to be made the queen of all fairy or anything like that. I mean, we don't see that with her. Um, so his desire doesn't seem to be exactly the same, but certainly the desire to possess her, her as this sort of maximally beautiful and desirable object desired by both the fairy kingdom and by Sir Orfeo certainly seems to be um, sort of right there in the middle, right there in the... Uh, sort of establishing the connection between them. Yeah, it's... The thing that I find most striking about it is that at first, when Herodotus described, when we get the description of the fairies and then the description of their kingdom, the context, especially after the description of the fairies and the fairy king himself with his 
single gem crown, right? Um, prompt, I mean, at least I felt prompted to understand that the kingdom that he was showing her was just like incomparably greater than the mortal kingdom. And then the same language is used to describe the mortal kingdom that he's given up, right, as the one that they have, which maybe suggests that they're not that different. Though, of course, then again, when we meet them, when he when goes into the city, it certainly is, well, both qualitatively and quantitatively greater uh, and more rich and beautiful uh, than his city, certainly. Um, but, but I think it does encourage us um, to see at least a connection, um, even a, you know, a, a, even a pretty close parallel between those two realms. Yeah, Jordan, go ahead. Um, I'm not sure this is kind of when thinking that we're taking at the time the photos uh, which are circulated, but maybe the description uh, of the one kingdom as being you know so great is not actually what's driving it. The absence of it is making him like feel that it's almost like a fairy kingdom like in and of itself. He's desiring in a way that, the, you know, fairy stories about satisfying primordial desires and the desire for what was lost is a pretty primordial desire. If you once had something that you loved and you gave it up or lost it, 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 it's almost like another fairy kingdom into itself once it doesn't have it. I like that. It would be, I agree that it would be more, I don't know what it would be more of, but it would be different if we had that same description just like of his kingdom while he was there, like in the intro lines or something. Let me tell you about Orpheus', Orpheus kingdom. It was like this, and then we get the same description later on. That would have been, that would have suggested, see, well, the two are really almost identical. But I agree, it's not spoken of in those terms until it's absent, uh, until it is almost as far from him. In fact, it appears to be further from him than the kingdom of fairy uh, at this particular moment. So yeah, I, I think that that's a, really, that's a really profitable way to think about it. Um, but we've... We've, we've skipped over his harp, which we should come back to. Um, the harp is the only thing that he takes with him, right? It's the only sort of connection back to his previous kingly life. It's the only of his possessions that he retains, though he doesn't carry it around with him all the time, right? He stores it in a tree uh, when he's not using it. I think it's one small reference which is interesting is the description of his harping, that he harps at his own will on line 271. Um, he harps at his own will. When he chooses to harp, he harps. And this, I think, especially in the context of the really heavy-handed, or the emphasis that we get in all of these comparisons of how great his life was and how terrible it is now, um, you know, are things like, you know, no saith, hey, nothing that him leaketh, right? Now he doesn't have anything that he desires. He doesn't have anything that he enjoys. All of those things he's given up, except his harp and his harping. Um, that is the one thing, not only thing that he has, that he likes, that he has kept, but also the one time in which he is doing something apparently to please himself at his own choice, right? Robbie? Also in this section, they, uh, again, referenced uh, Orpheus and how, he's, how they talk about how many harps all the birds and... Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This is, we can see the power that his music has. Well, I'm not even sure if power is quite the right way to describe it, but um, the effect that his music has, certainly, on the birds and beasts. Though I, I was also really struck by the line which seemed to me so unnecessary, which emphasized that as soon as he stops harping, what happens? The beasts all run away, right? In other words, like, we're, we're reminded 
Orfeo doesn't have the power to reverse sort of, you know, the laws of nature or the tendencies of nature. He's just, he's just suspending them temporarily. When his music is playing, that overrides, you know, the natural impulses of the beasts. But only temporarily. As soon as the music is done, is done they scatter, right? I get, which I guess I would, assume, would have been assuming that they would do, but I guess we want to emphasize, you know, like we're not supposed to be picturing, you know, like the relationship that, that Snow White has with the animals and Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, for instance, right? Where, like, the birds and squirrels just, like, can't, you know, get enough of her presence, right? And, and are always playing. Right, exactly, right? It, it's not like that at all, apparently. Um, and I think that that's... That, that's an interesting point. And the thing that it really draws attention to, it's not about him, it's about the harp, right? He's not a magical and appealing guy. His music has this effect on people. Yeah. He's He's what? Yeah, I mean, he's, uh, he's uh, entering, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the animals are certainly entering into this, uh, this uh, secondary world that he's creating through his music, yeah, yeah in which there's a, there are different rules, right? Sure, sure. Not, not that the poets or Orpheo would be thinking exactly in Tolkien's terminology, but uh, yeah, yeah, why not? Now, in this context, we get his, the description of his first direct, in, well, I say direct, actually, not quite direct, encounters with the fairies, right? What do we see? We get a few examples. Prior to his meeting, almost meeting with Herodis, what do we see? It sounded almost like the, the king of the fairies came out with like the wild hunt to torment him. Yeah, yeah, we've got things which sound very much like, like, like the Celtic wild hunt, right? He, he, we have this hunting, but what's different, what's strange, what's unusual about the hunting of the, of the fairy king? They don't have any game, so they're just kind of riding out there. Yeah, they don't ever catch anything. They don't ever take anything. They, uh, they, they don't noma anything, right? They never, they never, which, which means to take or to grab. They never, they never bring any game home. The footnote says, therefore, this, this, uh, this hunt seems to be aimless. I'm not sure that, that I can quite agree with that. That, like, we're acting like we're hunting, but instead we're just riding around in circles. Like, I don't think that's what the fairy queen is doing necessarily. That is, I don't think that's necessarily the effect. Okay. I'm reminded of the Knight's Tale and uh, how we went over, you know, the, the lust for hunting and the desire, you know, for the act of hunting. And, you know, I think that since, you know, fairy tales are all about what is desirable, what is desirable is not, you know, killing the animal. It's the, the, the process of killing the animal. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, exactly. But yet it wouldn't be the same just to say, like, hey, let's go out for a ride in the woods. Right? Uh, yeah, I mean, they, I also wonder... Are they, you know, really there, actually, at least 100%? He doesn't see them. He hears them. Um, and I mean, even their second activity is sort of even more bizarre, right? They, he sees them riding, sometimes hunting. Sometimes he hears the hunt, but he never sees them take any game. And what else does he see them do? Here he clearly sees them. What else do they do besides hunt without culmination? They dance. They dance. They dance. Which we'll come back to the dancing. Before the dancing, that's 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 encounter. That's number three. 
The first thing he describes is the hunt. The third thing is the dancing. The army. Yes. They they come out riding in a host as for war. Armed and weaponed. In fact, not only with weapons, but with drawn swords in their hands. That is, as if they're not only riding to war, but actually charging into battle. And yet he never sees where they go. And no battle ever appears to occur. And I think here, if we try to conceive of their activities sort of in ways which make sense to us, or we try to make sense of them, I think we're going to... It gets pretty silly pretty quickly. I mean, that is, I don't think we're being invited to imagine the fairy king in his court saying, okay, guys, let's do the, like, war thing, right? Like the pseudo-war thing, right? Let's all get up in our armor, and let's take our swords, let's go riding out with our swords and go, ah, and then we'll just stop and be like, that was fun. <laughs> Want to do it again? Right? Uh, same place next week, right? For the, for, for the pointless charge, right? We all enjoy a good pointless charge, you know, every once in a while. I mean, I don't think that that's what's happening here. Rather, I think that what we're being invited to imagine is that Orpheo is perceiving only part of what's going on. I think it's sort of more likely that they actually are going to war. We just, he just never sees with whom, and the battle is not witnessed by him. Um, it's not his business, and I don't think he necessarily has access to that. And the dancing sort of makes me think that even more. I mean, they come dancing through the way. Here he is in the woods, minding his own business. And then all of a sudden, here come the fairies. And uh, when the, we see them dancing through the woods, don't imagine the fairies like, you know, coming in pairs, doing the tango through the woods, <laughs> right? That's not what the fairies would be doing. What would they be doing? Running in circles. Yes, they would, be doing, they would be doing circle dances, chiefly. This is what fairies usually do, because this is what people usually do uh, in the Middle Ages. Um, so he would be seeing rings of the dancing fairies, and they'd have musicians with them, right? And this is quite, this is quite common. That is, if you were to be wandering in the woods in the Middle Ages, and you were to come across the fairies... That's unlikely, but if it did happen, the likeliest thing you would find them doing is dancing in a ring. And they would probably disappear as soon as you stepped into the, 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 the glade. That's the, in the finest tradition of fairy interactions with humans, right? Um, but again, I, I, it's not, it's, it, this seems to be, all three of them, that he is getting glimpses of what they're doing but that he's not, he's not like witnessing the entire thing and doesn't know what's going on. He just gets these little fragments. Well, they appear to hunt. They appear to fight. They appear to dance. I don't know why, from where, to where, with whom. None of that stuff he has access to, it seems. All of it seems to be a kind of, a, I don't know, a partial vision, a partial insight. And that's why I asked the question before, are they really there even? I mean, maybe yes, maybe no. He is not in fairy. He's in the woods. Cause we, we, and we know this because we will see him... Cro- there's a definite border that he crosses over when he actually goes to the kingdom of fairy itself. Um, they obviously visit the world of men, but, but they also seem to be... seem to appear in it even at times when they're not necessarily going there. Like, again, there's no indication that there are mortal people that they have come to the world to fight when they charge. 
What's different, though, when he sees the ladies? Yes, yes. That, that their, their falcons actually bring down birds. And we get a list of the kinds of birds that they bring down in finest medieval fashion. Uh, little a sneak in a little list of the names of waterfowl. We love that. Um, yeah, yeah, Taylor? Isn't that also the first time that the fairies indicate that they are aware of his presence because they take the queen away? So yes. he will not, or so that she will not see him. Yes. Yes, it's also the first time that we have any evidence that he actually tries to approach them. But you're right. Um, they, they are clearly aware of him, and their response to him is clear. They don't, they're not, you know, they don't like attack him or anything. You know, he doesn't, they just separate her, right? They take her away. Um, and it's, it's very, well, it's very interesting, her reaction. Right? He decides to approach them in the way that we already talked about. Oh, yeah, falconry. I used to love falconry. I'm going to go over and do that because, hey, I can. And then he recognizes her. And what happens when they see each other? What do we learn about her? About Herodias. Let's use her name. Stop calling her her. Yeah. Marta, what do you think? Um, well, they, they don't speak to each other. And... I think, you know, she, she cries a little bit, but then the other women kind of like, okay, we have to leave now. You can't be with him. Like, that was the rule. You cannot be with him. And, they, and, then, he, and then he says, no, I can't live without her. Now that I've seen her, I'm going to go follow her. And he does. Yeah, yeah, that she has been separated. She was separated by force, right? She was told, you have no choice. You have to go. And she recognizes, I'm going to have to go. Um, and now she has to go again, right? She's still being forcibly separate, but she still wants to stay with him. Um, they look at each other. Um, Yern he beheld her, and she him aken. Yern is a great Middle English word. Um, it's where our word yearning comes from. Um, but to, it's being used here as, a, as an adverb. He beheld her yearn, right, with with desire, with longing, um, eagerly, yes, uh, but with with longing and desire, um, and she looks at him the same way, right? Um, so we see that she has not forgotten him. She's not been taken off to the land of fairy and is now living a new life and has forgotten her old life or anything. She remembers him. She reckon, and not only does she recognize who she is, what other reaction does she have? Cries. What, what makes her cry exactly? Seeing him, knowing that she can't be with him. Yes, it's not when she's made to depart that she cries. She may, but we don't see her then because she's taken away. Christine? I think she said very sad for just his general state of that he's got to leave one here now. Yeah, yeah. She, it's like his decrepitude that makes her cry, right? She looks at him and she's like, oh. You used to be really rich, and now you're poor. You used to sleep on purple linen, and now you're sleeping on the ground. <laughs> right? I mean, she's, she's struck by like, how, how, how raggedly he's dressed. And, and so it's not just, wow, like, it's been 10 years. I miss you. I still love you. But also, you look a wreck. I mean, you look like you're really miserable. Uh, not only am I absent from you, but now I see you're suffering. And you've been suffering. Um, 
which shows, I mean, she is, so she's not only, not only does she remember him, she seems to be, like, sort of have full possession of her rac- rational faculties. And like, if, if this, is, so this is not just like a vision of her, right? This is, she is acting as somebody would, who, like if two people saw each other again after 10 years, right? I mean, so she seems to be living a sort of normal intellectual life. This makes sense. I feel like I'm really belaboring that point. Um, but there are ways in which, I mean, I'm sort of thinking back to the expectations I had when I first read it. And I remember when I first saw her, I expected it just to be like a vision or something. Or that she would be like, now she is one of the elves, right? And is not going to, you know, and her human life will be behind. She's going to have been sort of magically, you know, have forgotten it. Um, you know, even if you think of the... Uh, uh, you know, in many of the classical traditions, or the, the classical stories, of course, the, 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 the dead drink of the waters of Lethe and forget uh, things that came before. So not all of them do, and not, you don't do it right away. But, but anyway, I mean, I was thinking that, you know, we might have had some Lethe action or something, but no, I wasn't expecting that kind of sort of personal reunion between the two of them. Um, now, his decision... As, you know, they weave, and as Marta says, he's like, I am not okay with this, <laughs> right? That this is, I am, not, I am not going to stand for this. Now, he did this before, right? Say that he wasn't going to stand for this. This is what he said when she said, they're coming to take me away tomorrow. And he's like, no, they shall not, right? I shall not permit anyone to part us. No matter what happens, I shall not permit this. Uh, and he tries, but is sort of... You know, it's sort of hopelessly futile. Resisting the fairies is apparently futile. Um, But anyway, um, I think think we can see an interesting difference. Line 176 is his first sort of declaration of intent to defy the fairies. Alas, alas, he says, lever me where to later me leaf than thus to laser the queen me leaf. I would rather lose my life than lose the queen. All right. Well, sure. But of course, and that's one of the tragic things, right? I mean, it would have been kind of sad had he and his knights formed up around the imp tree and Herodotus and the fairy hosts come in and just like rip through them and their corpses all over the orchard and they take Herodotus away anyway. Like that would have been sad. But it's kind of even sadder that they never even get a chance to fight for her. Right? Come on, do your work. Oh. <laughs> I was kind of hoping at least to have the opportunity to die in her defense. Thank you very much. Right? I mean, it's even sort of more frustrating. Um, but now again, look at the difference. You know, in that first declaration uh, and his second one. The second one is on three thirty nine. Parfait quathe. Tida wat petida. We did so these levities read the selva way each other stretcher. Odlif ne death may no reja. Teed what petid. Come what may, happen what may happen, I'm going. Now before he says, remember he says, I would rather lose my life than lose my lady. Well, he kind of already has lost his life. That is, that's what he does, he gives it up. You remember one thing that we didn't talk about when we talked about his departure, his explicit, why does he leave and go into the wilderness? He doesn't say it is to find Herodotus. He says, somewhat puzzlingly, I'm going out into the wilderness far away from other people so that I never see another lady again because I have lost 
Herodas, who was the fairest lady of all. Lest I ever pers- like lay eyes upon another woman. And I don't think that necessarily means like, lest I fall in love again and marry a second wife. But like, I, I physically do not want another female in my scope of vision ever again. So I'm going to go off. Into the, I mean, it's like, he's completely abandoning. He's not going to go on with his life. Just like, my life can be the same except for the fact that Herodotus isn't here. He didn't get the chance to give his life uh, in her defense, so he gives up his life after the fact and leaves all of it behind. All of his interaction with people, all of his country, all of his land. He's already given up his life. And now, he says, again, similarly, but not exactly the same, that he doesn't care. Life or death, he doesn't care. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't have any respect for life or death. Come what may, it doesn't matter. I'm going to follow her. Again, this, I think, is just sort of the final expression or the final culmination of what he's been doing. Um, to me, this speech is the one that gives us the clearest answer and the clearest insight to why he leaves and what was going on. This is what he's been doing all along. And now... He, 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 he continues it, but yet with hope, with the hope of actually following her and being near her. So that's pretty cool. How about his time in... How, how, what, what did you make of his, uh, his crossing the border into Ferry? Admit it, what were you thinking of? Anyone? Yeah, it's, it looks like paradise. Um, certainly, for, for those like Taylor who just took Foundations last semester and have read the book of Revelation less than a month ago, uh, it's hard to resist that. I mean, we get, we get it's, it's, it's compared to paradise, and s- some of the language in the description sounds exactly like the language describing the New Jerusalem at the end of Revelation. Um, with the, the light, like it's all so bright, there's neither day nor night there, right? Because the whole place is full of radiance. The streets are paved with gold and jewels. It's, it sounds a lot like the New Not exactly like, but it sounds a lot like the New Jerusalem. We certainly are supposed to be thinking about that. How does he get in? Not to the, not to the city, into the land affair. Yeah, well. That was what was Right. He follows them, right? He tails the 6280s and sees them just walk straight into a rock. And he's like, okay, walk into a rock. I will. So he just walks into the rock, and when he walks into the rock, he finds himself somewhere else. Come on, I know you were all thinking of something here. Uh huh. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, if this didn't make you think of platform nine and three quarters, it should. um, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, that's, that's how you transition to the magical world of wizardry, right, in Harry Potter. It's actually one of the things that I really admire most about J.K. Rowling's imaginative conception in the world, the way that she manages the, like, magical kingdom overlay of the mundane kingdom, and that, yet nevertheless, um, you know, they intermingle, and yet there are these thresholds that you cross, like, you know, most significantly, the platform in King's Cross, also the, you know, the, the brick in the bar, right? I mean, there's, there, there's, there are several of these, of these transitions. And I, th- I think that that's, that's 
quite well done and very interesting. But anyway, so he, he, he takes this conscious step, and he knows when he does it. And, Will, I think you're right. It's significant because it doesn't always happen this way. We, you know, we, we will see other occasions, several other occasions, where you just seem to kind of blunder into fairy. Um, and you don't know when you got there, and you don't know how you got there, and sometimes you don't even realize that you are there until, like, weird stuff starts happening. Um, so, and sometimes even to say there is not exactly appropriate. I mean, even some of the language I was using before in discussing the business with the hunting and the dancing and everything else, I mean, I said, we're not in fairy, we're in the woods, right? Well, I, even that, like, where are the boundaries exactly? It's not clear that there are boundaries. Fairy is not, it's not like you can map it and put it on a, and put it on a map. Um, that's actually the thing about Hogwarts that disappoints me most is that in the end, there isn't a separate kingdom. It's just like in order to access certain entry points uh, to like specific locations. Like you could put Hogwarts on a map. It's just like concealed so nobody does, right? But in theory, you could. Uh, and I always find that a little bit disappointing. Like just like one more step towards the thoroughness of like the separation and the overlay of the world. And, and it would be in my humble and insignificant opinion, even cooler, but whatever. What do I know? I didn't sell 800 million books. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, the boundary, the, 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 so the, not only the precision of the boundary, you know, I mean, where Sir Orpheus like, now I'm not in fairy, now I am, right? That's unusual, but also the willfulness of it. Right? I don't like, I'm not just like finding myself in fairy. I haven't just been transported to fairy. I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm here, it's there, and I'm going. Right? And he see, it seems to be, at least he's risking transgression. He doesn't know if it's okay or not. He's going to go even if it's not okay, uh, but, 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 but he's going to go. And that I think is also, is also interesting and significant. Now, he does get, or at least win an invitation into the city. Right? He doesn't just like, his, his approach to the city is not the same as his approach to the rock, right? I'm going to go up and knock on the gate and talk to the porter and ask for permission to enter like I would anywhere else. And he gains it. So he is invited in by the fairy's agreement, which is also interesting, I think. Yeah, Jordan? Um, when I mentioned he was going, went through three miles to the rock, I came to the it wasn't actually like that. It was more like a metaphor for cave. Which brought to mind the uh, underworld is like the movie, yes, like he's underground descending into the Maybe, maybe. I, I, that, that reference to the three miles, I'm not sure if he's inside a rock or tunnel for that long or exactly what. That's, that's a possible reading of it. And certainly the idea of going into the earth should recall Orpheus, who does in fact, you know, go down a tunnel into the earth and find the underworld. Um, possibly. I don't think that, you know, maybe, I have to go look back and look at that line again carefully, but I think it's possible to read it that way. Uh, again, certainly the parallel to Orpheus is, is appropriate. Um, and, if, and even if we weren't, even if we had forgotten the reference to Pluto at the beginning of the poem, uh, and we had lost, you know, and we had been caught up in Sir Orpheus' story and stopped thinking of Orpheus and Eurydice, and we're not thinking at all about the, the other world or the underworld or the afterlife when we get to the kingdom of fairies, when we meet the pseudo-corpses in the courtyard, we certainly shouldn't be thinking about the underworld if we weren't already. Um, 
But we're out of time. We'll come back to the courtyard and the pseudo-corpses at the beginning next time. All right. In session number four, we will indeed have a long discussion of that courtyard and its grisly contents, and then finish up the poem, so make sure to read it carefully through the end before moving on. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.